The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. But the the result is sort of to Roger's point about how this sort of approach can be abused if so desired going forward. It did not use what is a, a common approach in investigations, which is to use a very detached, just let a straight recitation of the facts tell the story approach. And instead it it used some rhetorical flourish. It, you know, referenced things like crackpot theories or said the letter was a lie. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 24th, 2022. It is a rare emergency podcast, and I suspect you know why. The January 6th committee issued its final report Thursday night. We spent Friday reading through it and formulating some initial thoughts, observations, bewilderments, and questions. Joining me in the virtual jungle studio to chew it all over were Natalie Orpet, Lawfare's executive editor, and four Lawfare senior editors, Scott R. Anderson, Quinta Jurassic, Molly Reynolds, and Roger Parloff. We divided up the report so that we got through almost all of it and could talk about almost all of it. We're giving you an overview and some analysis. Plus, we're wondering what happens now that the January 6th committee is done with its work. We give it some letter grades. We do all kinds of stuff. It's a long podcast, but there's a lot to say about it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 24th, Emergency Edition, the January 6th committee's final report. Okay, Molly, I'm going to start where I promise no other podcast on this um, report is going to start. Congress has sent the Electoral Count Act reform to the president. That is the first uh, recommendation uh, passing the Electoral Count Act of the January 6th committee report. Uh, I believe the bill was passed before the report was issued have you ever before seen a committee a legislative recommendation take negative time to implement before? <laughs> so 
um, I can't say that I have uh, until I was reading the recommendations at the conclusion of um, this report. So you're right that the first recommendation is about the Electoral Count Act. Um, we're recording this on Friday afternoon. Um, the House has recently finished voting on the omnibus spending bill that carries the reforms to the Electoral Count Act. Um, it is probably worth noting for the sake of like complete accuracy that the recommendation included in the January 6th committee report is for passage of the House's version of reforms to the Electoral Crown Act, the measure that went um, with the omnibus to the president's desk is the Senate's version. Scott, if you wanted to, I'm sure could tell you all about the differences between them. But I think at the end of the day, um, the the basic point still stands, which is that one of the things that the committee um, has recommended that Congress do, Congress has basically already done. I'll also note uh, on sort of a similar trajectory that one of the other rec- sets of recommendations in the report, which is about um, increased oversight of the Capitol Police, I suspect we'll talk more about that. Um, Quinta has been writing uh, about this extensively since the introductory material came out on Monday. One of the recommendations included in the Capitol Police Oversight recommendation involves having joint hearings before the committees of jurisdiction for the Capitol Police in the House and the Senate with testimony from the Capitol Police Board. That recommendation was actually already codified into law about a year ago. Uh, last December, uh, the House and the Senate passed legislation that made some changes to, um, to the Capitol Police, including allowing the Capitol Police to um, request the support of the the National Guard, which again was something that grew out of January 6th. Um, But so that in some ways is a recommendation that uh, is like a year old, um, although it has, they actually haven't um, implemented it yet. So I sort of appreciate the continued prodding. But there are some, there's a little bit of a everything old is new again feel to some of these recommendations. Well, I will just say that if you want complete enactment of your recommendations, recommending things that have already happened is a great way to go. Scott, uh, let us start with a kind of overview of this document. Uh, It is 845 pages between the six of us. We have read the whole thing. I don't think any one person has read the whole thing, but uh, what do you make of it as a document? What is the, the... tale that it tells and to what extent is it different from the uh, live action television version that the committee presented over the summer? So it is a really interesting read and warrants, uh, I think, people spending time with, if you have the time to read an 800-page report anytime over uh, the coming holiday or at least the executive summary. It's interesting because in my mind, it actually really reads like a continuation of much of the efforts of the committee over the last year, insofar as the hearings that they held were always very carefully orchestrated to tell a story, to build a narrative, to both lay out a factual case, but do it in a way that's engaging and that fits a broader kind of arc that is accessible to readers who may not be grabbed by the technical details, but will get the bigger story and the bigger significance of it, Um, obviously intended for a more popular audience probably than your average congressional hearing. And this report, despite its pretty daunting length, actually does that really similarly. Each section opens up with a pretty compelling anecdote. A lot of the ones we know 
from who have been following this case, so like the Raffensperger call, a couple incidents of of major encounters and major statements by former President Trump, and then goes into a fairly detailed narrative, providing a lot of the background work, the historical analysis that we would want from these different chapters that it kind of breaks the story up into, and then closes on a punchy note, often directly related to kind of the human costs of what is happening here. You know, the notes that often goes out on are the people that were hurt by what former President Trump and those close to him did in various regards in each of these kind of sub stories that we see. It's worth noting, it kind of breaks up the narrative into eight well, it does break up into eight chapters, each of which tells a little bit of a different part of the story. You know, one starting with kind of the whole idea that former President Trump knew the big lie was a big lie. He knew he lost the 2020 election, going then to the effort first to try and persuade state and local officials to not certify and not finalize the results of the election or oversee over supersede them through state legislatures. Then moving on to the fake electors idea, the idea that we're going to submit our own electors, then shifting a focus a little bit to the Justice Department efforts to get the Justice Department to declare there was some sort of election fraud just to provide some threat of credibility to potential efforts by Trump supporters in the states to reverse election results. Then going to the kind of last uh, redoubt, the last hit ditch effort to persuade former Vice President Pence to use his purported constitutional authority, disputed constitutional authority at the county of electoral votes to change how they are counted uh, in a way contrary to the Electoral Count Act, contrary to prevailing practice. And then from there, it goes and spends the last three chapters on January 6th itself and the aftermath, kind of the build up to the demonstration. Former President Trump's Be There Will Be Wild tweet featuring prominently there as the header for that section, then going to Trump's own inaction on January 6th, what they describe as the 187 minutes of dereliction, um, and then finally breaking down the actual attack itself and how it played out, and in various ways how it intersects with former President Trump uh, and some of his statements up until the end of the event. It then rolls into recommendations, which Molly's already touched on a little bit, and then we get four appendices that break off parts of the story, three of which I would say are interesting and worth a read. Fourth one, we can get into not so much. But it's really, really actually a fairly well put together package in terms of reading. It's very readable if you get past the daunting length. And and in that way, I think is really serving to the same mission is to establish not just a historical and technical record of the committee's work, but to make one that's publicly accessible and will help shape the public understanding and public narrative around it, perhaps more than a more technical report would. All right. So I'm going to ask each of you uh, which parts of it you've read or read in detail, because people have skimmed more than they've actually read. But uh, Scott, what are the parts that you've read carefully, and what did you notice about them? Sure. I broke off two parts that uh, follow issues that I follow more closely. One is regarding efforts to lobby state and local officials. Um, this is uh, the section chapter two. It's entitled, I Just Want to Find 11,780 Votes, quoting from that call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. That's actually the name of the first album. <laughs> exactly. It, it's it's a notable quote, one of the big ones they pull out here. Uh, and then after that, I also looked into the Eastman theory, the efforts to persuade former uh, Vice President Pence to change election results. Um, both are really interesting sections, and they actually do bring, I don't know, entirely new facts in there, but they l- kind of lay them out in really fascinating, interesting ways that actually make for a much more compelling uh, structure and helps to, I think, understand them a little bit. In chapter two, regarding efforts to 
target state and local officials and persuade them to join this kind of persuasion effort. What it does is it does a very good job bringing together the scale of what was being pursued. Um, It notes that the committee has identified at least more than 200 instances where former President Trump and his inner circle of advisors, basically Giuliani is the main person they, they identify here, but there are a couple other people they bring in, actually specifically targeted state legislators or state local uh, state and local election officials for engagement of one sort, whether it's a tweet, whether it's a phone call, whether it's a conversation, trying to persuade them to get on board with these efforts to change the election results through mechanisms that really range from initially very kind of flattering, prevailing calls, I'm the president, I want you to say you're such a good patriot, we need you to do this for the sake of the country, that often descend and over time particularly lean in a much more intimidating or outright bullying direction, um, accusing people of being bad Republicans, because these are often Republican local and state officials that they're targeting and calling, you know, essentially threatening people's political futures. And then ultimately, in many of these cases, calling them out publicly, naming them rhinos, Republicans in name only, in public tweets that led those individuals to get high degrees of public intimidation and harassment and their families to face often threats of violence as well. Notably there as well, it spends a lot of time really pulling out former President Trump's personal involvement. Rudy Giuliani is who we think about with most of those efforts, I think, because uh, he's had kind of the most public role in those days after the election. But the report goes to pains to highlight every call, or maybe not every call, but many calls former President Trump made, many meetings he held, and to pull out quotes of them from the testimony where he is saying things directly related to this uh, what it, I think, rightfully portrays as a largely fraudulent legal theory that there was election fraud and state legislatures as a result could appoint their own electors. So it's really compelling in those regards. And that's those aren't new. Those aren't new facts, but it lays them out in a way that's very useful. And I think it makes the case particularly effectively, in some ways, maybe even more effectively than they were able to do in a hearing because of the sheer volume of material they're able to process more in writing. The fifth chapter regarding the efforts to pressure Vice President Pence does a similar thing. We know this story better, I think. It's actually kind of a similar structure because this effort to kind of advocate for him that melds public intimidation, work with kind of the outside ecosystem of conservative advocates and alt-right media that often amplify Trump's message and stir up all of this public pressure and harassment campaigns and threats of violence against people involved. We know, obviously, Vice President Pence really became the target of a lot of that uh, on or about January 6th. But there, they really pursue this TikTok method. They actually run through every day from January 2nd to January 6th for what former President Trump and what John Eastman did to try and lobby Pence and get him and his advisors on board with their plan, even while noting the strong objections of White House counsel, strong objections of Pence's own legal advisors, the fact that they speculate something that uh, former White House counsel Pat Cipollone never would not testify to for an executive privilege grounds at the hearing, but the fact that he was not present for the, for the last meeting with Eastman and Pence in the Oval Office. And it infers that former President Trump asked him not to attend, presumably because he was highly critical of Eastman's legal theory. So it all bakes down to, again, a really compelling TikTok narrative, similar to what we got over the, the hearing uh, over the summer. I don't think this is as big a departure, but nonetheless, in a pretty compelling way. There's also some stuff in the appendices I spent some time with, which we should talk about, but we've probably saved that to the end once we get out of the meat of the report. Roger, which sections did you uh, read and what did you make of them? Yeah, I tried to read the sections that really relate to uh, violence and the criminal cases. So those were chapter six, which was about summoning the mob 
and that's the uh, it's titled something like uh, "Will Be Wild." It's based on the tweet of December nineteenth. That was the second album. Yeah, and chapter eight, which is the analysis of the attack. I only got a few subsections into chapter eight. I read slowly. I also read the uh, executive summary, of course, like everyone here, which is a great document. I, as far as what it adds to the executive summary, the, it's pretty uh, nuanced. And if, if you're really into this stuff, it's all interesting, as I am. But um, uh, one little tidbit that struck me in chapter six, it's I think it's new to, I mean, I think it's new to me. I, I think it's new. It, it had to do with when uh, Trump wanted to, you know, he wanted to walk with his followers to the Capitol. This was an idea that uh, he began to voice as early as December 29th. And then a lot of, he was talk, a lot of his people were talking about it January 6th, January 2nd. And uh, he was having another conversation January 4th. And of course, most people were trying to talk him out of this uh, as a terrible idea. And one of them, Max Miller, was trying to talk him out of it and said, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a security risk. We can't do it. And so Trump proposed uh, to counteract the security risk. We'll have 10,000 National Guardsmen deployed around me uh, to protect me and my followers from the left-wing counter-protesters. And will this unit of National Guard, and he would march to the Capitol. What an image. And, and of course, what an irony, you know, given that he wouldn't deploy the National Guard to protect the Capitol or, you know, the joint session. So that was an amazing little tidbit that I don't that I hadn't heard before. I don't know if anyone else had. Beyond that, um, it gets sort of uh, into the weeds. You have all of these players that I underestimated, and I think most people did just because they are so fringe, so extreme. But there's no doubt about it. These these were key players, Alex Jones, Ali Alexander, and of course, Roger Stone, and then uh, Enrique Tario and Stuart Rhodes. And, and, and it turns out that uh, so many of these people know each other. You know, Biggs, Joe Biggs uh, was uh, used to work. He's one of the Proud Boys who's now in, in the first seditious conspiracy case for the Proud Boys. You know, he used to work for Alex Jones. And, and, and of course, Stone knows everybody. He, he knows Tario and he knows Rhodes. And, and of course, there's the friend of Stone signal chat group that everybody's on. I just want to point out that, Roger, that I'm not on the Friends of Stone list. And I, <laughs> and I did feel left out when I learned that it existed and I wasn't on it. The, the one thing that you do feel going through this chapter is the real tragedy that uh, they could not force Dan Scavino, he, the uh, f- director of communications, uh, one of his, one of Trump's director of communications. He was sort of the social media guru. And he's a rather crucial character because 
you wondered, were they uh, monitoring the Friends of Stone group? And you also wonder, and actually we know, he was monitoring this very important site called the Donald.Win, which had about a community of about 790,000 of the most ardent, and if you believe their rhetoric, totally violent and dangerous Trump supporters. Once that... Um, December 19th tweet goes up, you know, within three minutes, the Donald Win uh, has it up as the, the posted, pinned to the top of their site. And everyone is discussing what weapons to bring, how to cut off the tunnels underneath the, uh, the Capitol. They're passing around maps. And, and one would like to know exactly uh, how much you know, Trump was being kept abreast. And there's a tremendous amount of circumstantial evidence that he was being closely kept abreast. But without Scavino, it's hard to seal the deal. But uh, there's interesting information in this chapter on, on, on that. So, Natalie, what part did you read? Yes. Um, so I focused the most on um, chapter four, which was titled, Just Call It Corrupt and Leave the Rest to Me. Um, I also did spend some time, there were short sections, but with the introduction by um, Representative Pelosi and the introductions by Chair Thompson and Vice Chair Liz Cheney, which I do think we should come back to after we discuss the meat of the report. Chapter four talked about the machinations within the Department of Justice and with regard to Trump and the Trump campaign's efforts to pressure DOJ to play more of a role in Trump's efforts to overturn the results of the election. So I didn't have the sense from reading it that there was a whole lot of new information. Um, it tracked through four separate schemes that were underway and that Trump was trying to push and the degree to which they were successful and the sort of characters involved with, with each of them. And each scheme sort of comes simultaneously, but in a bit of a sequence at increasing degrees of desperation as the certification of the Electoral College on January 6th um, approaches. The first is just sort of generalized statements of fraud and then um, some more specific conspiracy theories or, or things that were noticed in different counties or states that Trump was pushing very hard for the Department of Justice to investigate. The second scheme was this very famous letter that was drafted by Ken Klukowski in the, within the Department of Justice and that was uh, there was pressure on at the, this was by that point, um, acting Attorney General Rosen and his deputy Donahue um, to sign this letter. They both declined. This was the letter that was designed to be sent to Georgia state officials to encourage them to convene a special session of the Georgia legislature to address, quote unquote, problems with the election and to appoint a new slate of electors that would support Trump rather than Biden. The third scheme also related to fake electors trying to get other states to send a fake slate of electors along the lines of the scheme that Scott just summarized. And then the last scheme was 
this effort to um, install Jeff Clark, um, who was at the time the acting head of the civil division of the Justice Department, um, who was an environmental lawyer by background, who had secured a um, an inroads to Trump directly through Representative Scott Perry, and who uh, Trump was initially contemplating and then in fact seems to have installed as acting attorney general to replace Rosen when Rosen was not complying with Trump's various pressures, uh, pressure campaigns to do more um, and to take actions that by Rosen and others judgment were not appropriate um, and not doable. There's one more scheme I should mention, which is uh, Trump was pushing for the Justice Department to file a lawsuit in the Supreme Court, making allegations of fraud. The Justice Department concluded that the U.S. government would have no standing to do so, so declined to do so. But Clark was holding himself out there as more willing to take the actions that Rosen and Donahue were refusing to take, and um, therefore Trump looked to install him and was only persuaded against finalizing that at a very dramatic meeting on January 3rd, um, at which Rosen, Donahue, Cipollone, Philbin, and with the promise of essentially the rest of leadership of the Department of Justice to resign if, if in fact, Trump took action to fire Rosen and replace him with Clark. So all of that is not new. The way in which the report lays it out is a little bit more comprehensive. It's easier to see the ways in which these different schemes overlap and how indeed they overlap with schemes elsewhere. So you really have the sense that, you know, the, for example, the fake electors scheme was the Department of Justice was just one route by which Trump and um, his members of his campaign and others who were pushing um, on this thread were trying to get this accomplished. They were really pushing on every single door they could think of, and the Department of Justice was just one of them. Um, I did think one interesting fact of the report that couldn't be captured in the hearings was just seeing through the footnotes where different information was coming from, which was both interesting in terms of seeing you know, there was more diversity of sources than we would have known about before. For example, the footnotes confirm that there were several productions of documents that came out of the Justice Department. It also, to me, sort of further emphasized the fact that this report is definitely not a document that could be used in a criminal prosecution as it is, because much of the citation material is hearsay um, or is from a single source um, that was from testimony taken by the committee, of course, not subject to cross-examination. Um, so this really is, it just further underscored to me the the way in which this report is telling a story, but is a, a very different type of document than an investigation that is designed for prosecutorial purposes. All right. Uh, finally, uh, Molly and Quinta, and I address you guys as a uh, unit, not to deprive you of your individual identities, but because you were kind of working jointly today, what did you guys read and, and what is the significance of it? 
We took a look at Appendices 1 and 2, which are respectively government agencies' preparation for and response to January 6th, and DC National Guard preparation for and response to January 6th. So one of the reasons that we decided that we were going to take a look at these was because we had previously written for Lawfare way back in the spring, summer of 2021, about a report put out by the Senate Rules and Homeland Security Committees looking at basically exactly these questions. Um, what happened in law enforcement and the Defense Department in the run-up to January 6th and on the day itself? And I think it is fair to say, although Molly can correct me if I'm wrong, that this is mostly, it's not a repeat of that Senate report, but it will be pretty familiar to anybody who has read it. Um, the story here is is really a sort of general uh, failure to prepare and and kind of scrambling around. I'll I'll leave Molly to talk about uh, Appendix Two because she's looking closely at that. On Appendix One, what I found particularly interesting this is a section that really talks about the Capitol Police and also other government agencies, including the FBI. And I had written in a quite irate fashion on Lawfare about the portion of the uh, executive summary that was released earlier this week and the report on intelligence failures uh, that really framed them as not failures at all. And, and I argued kind of went out of the way to present January 6th as something that happened only because intelligence agencies and to some extent law enforcement agencies simply couldn't anticipate what Trump was going to do. Whereas on the contrary, you know, we we have an enormous amount of evidence, including from that Senate Rules and uh, Homeland Security report, that these agencies were really caught with their pants down in a number of ways. So Appendix One is a little more critical of these agencies. It certainly doesn't distort the facts in the way that I felt that the executive summary did. And it acknowledges that, um, and this is a quote, there are additional steps that should have been taken to address the potential for violence on that day. It notes uh, a number of failures by Capitol Police to really coordinate and put together a plan. The, the portion that I found the most interesting is some new information about what the FBI was up to. So uh, this is actually not noted in in the report, but we know after January 6th, FBI Director Christopher Wray and other senior members of the Bureau kind of went out there and said, we didn't know what was happening. There's this one report that comes from the Norfolk Field Office, but that's really it. And what's interesting is that the report has information about uh, a system that the Bureau runs that's called eGuardian. And this isn't new. This is public information to essentially take in reports of potential threats and decide what to do with them if it's worth, you know, tasking someone to, to take a look. And it says that so that that system received inputs in advance of January 6th. That's not hugely surprising. But that there's a, a really interesting footnote that says, though the Bureau wouldn't give the committee exact numbers, it identified several dozen, that's a, a quote, of these reports that it seems like from the language, it's a little garbled, but that the Bureau sort of received and took some action on. In the run-up to the 6th, and these are reports that, quote, included a reference to January 6th, Washington, D.C., and either the U.S. Capitol or a specific threat of violence. Now, I found that extremely interesting 
Because if you read that alongside these statements by bureau leadership saying, you know, we really didn't know that this was happening. We had this one Norfolk report, but we didn't find out about that until later. You know, here is the committee saying there are at least 36 of these these instances where someone flagged that something was potentially going wrong and someone at the bureau seems to have thought that it was worth looking into. And so the question, of course, is then, what happened, right? Why were those not raised to uh, a higher level of the Bureau? Why was nobody looking at this? And the report doesn't really make that connection. It it instead ends with this kind of odd note about, you know, avoiding another January 6th that, quote, the best defense against that danger will not come from law enforcement, but from an informed and active citizenry. I would love to know what that is supposed to mean. So I, I came away from from this appendix sort of uh, maybe a little less cranky than I was having read the the introductory material, but still quite cranky. I think that probably kind of accurately describes how I felt after reading Appendix 2 as well, which as Quinta mentioned, is specifically focused on um, the preparation and behavior of the DC National Guard. Um, As Quinta discussed, um, there's a lot that we know about the National Guard's role um, from that investigation that was done jointly by the Senate Rules and Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committees. And much of what's in this appendix kind of rehashes that material. Um, In some places, there's some additional detail that we didn't have before around sort of the precise nature of miscommunications and confusions on uh, the 6th itself. But where the committee kind of leaves us in this appendix is with the conclusion, and I'll quote here, that the delay on the 6th was or seems unnecessary and unacceptable, uh, but it was the byproduct of military processes institutional caution and a revised deployment approval process. We have, the committee asserts, no evidence that the delay was intentional. And I think the kind of facts as laid out um, are consistent with that. Um, uh, Again, it does also reinforce some sort of earlier conclusions that we collectively, I think, probably had about what happened with the Guard in the Sixth, things like the kind of perceptions of what was a good idea um, on both the part of um, the DOD leadership and the part of um, the leadership of the DC National Guard were really profoundly influenced by the by both entities' experiences with the protests in DC uh, in the summer of 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. Um, there's also some discussion of the infamous optics conversation um, where um, whether the word optics itself was used, there was some concern on the part of, um, again, especially military officials, about what it would look like for the National Guard to go to the Capitol. So they sort of assert that the delay on January 6th, which is the thing that I think folks are especially worried about in this context, um, assert that that was the result of, in their words, imperfect communication. But that really kind of ignores the question of why were conditions ripe for miscommunication among the Capitol Security bureaucracy, the National Guard, uh, the Metropolitan Police Department, um, and the Department of Defense. And instead of kind of answering that question, the committee in the appendix just pivots again back to sort of laying the blame at the feet of Trump and saying that, quote, none of the individuals involved understood what President Trump planned for January 6th and how he would behave during the violence, end quote, and then leaves us with um, some lessons learned from the National Guard's experience, which just, and I'm 
roughly paraphrasing here, amount to crisis management is hard. Uh, And so this is all to say that, um, again, like Quinta, I think this section adds some new information that we didn't have, but leaves me at least a little bit um, disappointed as I, again, like Quinta, was hoping that these questions of kind of where did things go wrong um, in the preparation for January 6th would have been a bigger focus of the report. Um, The last thing I'll say is just that in addition to having read Appendices one and two. Um, I also spent some time with the recommendations. I talked a little bit about this at the top um, in talking about two recommendations that have already been codified into law in some form. But there's a couple other recommendations that are also um, offered, but aren't really new material. Um, And that really sort of struck me is that the committee is surfacing some ideas that folks have talked about in different contexts, um, and in some cases, put into actual legislation that hasn't yet been signed into law, but they're, they're really sort of bringing out some, uh, some existing material. So for example, um, one of the recommendations is about, it calls on Congress to enact legislation that would um, create a cause of action that Congress could use to enforce subpoenas in federal court. Um, This was a big issue. We covered it extensively on Lawfare in the attempt to get former White House counsel Don McGahn to testify um, in front of the House Judiciary Committee. So, and that uh, language is also included in um, the Protecting Our Democracy Act, the House passed last year. There's a recommendation about making the joint session to count the Electoral College votes um, a national security special event. The Government Accountability Office already recommended that. So again, I don't want to totally uh, minimize the recommendations, but we did, uh, or I should say the committee spent a lot of time during its work trying to sort of sell the idea that they were going to make legislative recommendations, that that was part of their purpose. Um, uh, Jamie Raskin, who's on the committee, at least at one point, referred to the legislative recommendations as sweeping. Um, I would not say that the legislative recommendations meet that criteria, but they do, at, at a minimum, kind of remind us of where there are levers that Congress and some other actors, I didn't really, I only really talked about the congressional recommendations. There are some other recommendations that are more directed at the Department of Justice in various ways, but other actors who might also respond to the findings in the report. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate 
data brokers that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, so uh, before we move on, we've skipped over two chapters, one of which I will just uh, mention briefly, and the other of which, Scott, I'm going to come to you about. So the uh, chapter one uh, is actually a elucidation of the idea of the big lie, which is a term I don't like, but uh, everybody seems to use it now. And the basic idea of this chapter, which I read with 
quite a bit of interest is that, uh, you know, Trump was advised that he had lost, was aware that he had lost, and peddled these conspiracy theories anyway. The chapter mostly tracks the presentation on this in the hearing. There was one thing I was particularly on the lookout in le- for in light of the executive summary. So in the executive summary, uh, there is a reference to Trump having made several uh, comments to staff that shows that he knew he had lost. And there was a footnote, uh, footnote 50, that identifies several of these conversations, including a quite recent uh, interview with Kellyanne Conway. Uh, This information appears in the executive summary, but does not appear in the chapter which raises the question to me of whether the executive summary is really summarizing the document or whether it's kind of its own standalone uh, miniature report. I could not find a similar reference to this anywhere in chapter one, uh, which generally has the, the claim that he knew he was, uh, that he knew he had lost, but uses as the, as the hearings did, the as evidence for that, the fact that he was repeatedly told that rather than the fact that he ever showed much consciousness of it himself. There is, of course, the famous uh, exchange with Mark Meadows, uh, which Cassidy Hutchinson reports, where he says, this is too embarrassing. I can't, we can't let them know I lost. Uh, but there's no point at which this uh, rather tantalizing piece of information or claim in the executive summary is fleshed out in the paragraph. So add that to uh, the list of things that we are mildly cranky about. Uh, And that brings us, Scott, to chapter three, which uh, you and I have both spent a little bit of time with. What's going on in chapter three? So chapter three is the chapter that focuses on the fake electors scheme. Um, this was the effort to appoint or generate, the point is being a little too generous in most cases, um, alternate slate of, slates of electors uh, who then could submit their own pro-Trump electoral votes prior to January 6th in the different states. And this was a legal strategy that was developed at least as framed by the report in a pretty compelling way, by a lawyer named Kenneth Cheesebro. This is a a gentleman who was kind of a volunteer lawyer for the Trump campaign and in the post-election sort of environment got involved in litigation strategy in various regards and generated this idea that um, really the uh, vice president uh, as the president of the Senate has a lot of authority potentially in managing how to resolve disputes among different electoral slates and that in fact you could perhaps change different results by appointing alternate slates of electors and having um, the vice president then choose those. This chapter really focuses on the effort to generate those slates of electors and building them in. And it is a really interesting read, I think in part because of kind of Cheesebro's role. He 
you know, is one of the six people who ultimately gets a criminal referral from the committee, uh, as we learned earlier this week, and I think is probably the least well known of all of them, uh, was the one who seemed like, even after the hearings from the summer, a notable but like kind of mid-tier figure, not somebody you would place at the absolute middle of the uh, of this broader apparatus, potentially criminal apparatus, at least if, uh, in the uh, committee's view. But this chapter really lays out why he made that core list of six in the referral. And it is that he kind of laid out the architecture for this strategy around setting up these different slates of electors, which we know is a focus, if not a major focus, of the Justice Department's efforts in investigating this. We know we've seen um, subpoena served, investigatory steps taken in relation to some of those fake elector slates efforts around the country. And it's one place where you We've seen, uh, you know, charges potentially brought and certainly allocated here about interfering with federal procedures, filing false claims to the federal government, things like that. There are lots of statutes that you could pull in to potentially be applicable here. Making false statements to the government um, is criminal in lots of other contexts and routinely prosecuted by the Justice Department in other contexts. And so there's real legal liability there. And in kind of facilitating and orchestrating the scheme, um, Cheese Bros made him part his himself, at least in the eyes of the committee part of that conspiracy. And this really lays out the case for that. And in that sense, it's, I think, an important part of the report because it justifies what was, I think, one of the somewhat more surprising steps it ended up taking in its recommendations from referrals earlier this week. Yeah, I will just add on this and as well on the pressure on state officials chapter, which we talked about earlier. One of the contributions that the report makes here is completeness. So in the hearing, you know, the focus was almost entirely on a couple of individual states. In the uh, hearings, there's a big focus on, you know, for example, Arizona and the pressure on Rusty Bowers, the, 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 the Senate majority leader there. But here, uh, you know, they actually meticulously go through each of the seven states at the risk of being boring. And as Scott detailed earlier about chapter two, they really track every contact uh, designed to put pressure on state officials. Uh, there's a particularly striking paragraph where they count them all and they just present the data on how many contacts with state officials here. And I think this is probably one of the most significant contributions. This, I think it's chapter two and chapter three, uh, where they, they really go and do what no journalist could do because they can't subpoena the records and they just identify uh, the scope and scale of the conduct. Uh, obviously, the Justice Department can do that, but you know that depends on whether indictments are forthcoming, whether we ever learn that. I think the scale of these pressures is one of the most significant contributions that the committee makes. All right. So that is a, a kind of overview of what's in the document. Now let's take a step back and, and talk about uh, the committee. There are some things that we're grumpy about individually, and I suspect collectively about this report. There's a, a real contribution that the committee has made uh, in a number of respects. 
Uh, Roger, get us started. How do you evaluate the January 6th select committee as a whole? You know, from beginning to end, what do you think its importance is and what will it be remembered for, good and bad? Well, I th- I think it had an astounding impact. I think it was astoundingly successful, I, I guess because of its unique origin and the fact that through missteps by Kevin McCarthy, really, um, you got this group that is bipartisan, but has no sinkers on it. (laughs) Uh, You know, everyone was acting in pretty good faith. And so it, it got an astounding amount done. And I do think, although, you know, there's always controversy and we don't know the full story of what was going on in the Department of Justice anyway, but it sure seems like this did light a fire under the Department of Justice's feet. It seemed like the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony in particular just blew the doors off this thing that and showed the DOJ that there were things going on they they really didn't realize. So, but anyway, I have an overwhelmingly positive feeling. I I I, I don't know what the the new Congress acting in bad faith will try to do to mimic it, and it, you, it's easy to see how some of its techniques can be abused. But um, if it, it, it if you don't have a bipartisan group. But overwhelmingly, uh, I'm not grumpy. <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm amazed. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, toward the end, of course, there was, there was friction, uh, which is, uh, you know, the good that shows that, yeah, there were people from different parties involved and they kept, by and large, kept their eye on the ball. All right, Quinta, you have been our grumpiest uh, so what's your evaluation? If you had to give a, a boil it down and give a letter grade to the committee, what would the letter grade be and, and what would the constituent parts of the letter grade be? Well, my first complaint is that the kerning of the typography in some of the headers is really awful. A lot of typos too, including on the date on the front page. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm I'm saying I'm joking. Like th- these are this is a committee that has done an incredible amount of work. Roger is totally right that they they really blew the doors off in their hearings. Um, they I've written about this. They substantially changed my view of Trump's culpability, moral and legal, for the insurrection, and I think showed that he was far more involved than. I certainly had had understood, and I think it's fair to say the public as a whole had understood. So, um, my my crankiness should be understood against that backdrop of otherwise overwhelming uh, respect and enthusiasm. But I do think that you know you can really tell that they were uh, working up to the wire on this one. I think Molly and I had joked early on in the the committee's existence that they were going to be. Uh, holding hearings right up until New Year's Eve in, in 2022. And we we maybe weren't that far off. I do think that 
it seems clear they made some pretty heavy-handed decisions about what to focus on in this document. I was anticipating that. There had been reporting on that and on some staff dissatisfaction, as I think Roger alluded to. What I was not anticipating was that in the introduction that the the committee would essentially straight up distort the facts in order to kind of put the blame solely at Trump's feet and and allied the extent to which intelligence agencies, really the FBI and DHS fell down on the job. Um, and I do think that, I mean, th- that I think is is egregious and pretty unforgivable, the extent to which that that was done. And I'm, I continue to be irate. I will say that in the appendices, at least in one and two, there are not contortions to that degree. It is certainly focused on on Trump, and there's sort of you know every time that the committee describes a real failure by uh, intelligence or the Pentagon, it, they'll kind of take a step back and say, "But just to be clear, all of this was because of Trump," which you know certainly drives the point home. I do think that there you know that there are a lot of places where you can kind of see the traces of you know places where they could have connect, connected the dots more um you know there it's notable that FBI director Christopher Ray's name appears nowhere in the document at least according to a control F search which is exactly how Christopher Ray would want it Oh I'm sure he is delighted um which is astonishing for someone who is the director of an an agency that oversaw arguably, I'm not arguably, what was the worst intelligence failure since 9-11. And so that is pretty stunning to me. I was hopeful that we would see more of this material in the appendices and that the appendices would maybe be a little more robust. Um, It's kind of disappointing that they're not. I will certainly be keeping an eye out for the transcripts that the committee has promised to release to see if there's anything more substantive on, on the specific issues I've pointed to in those those documents. I know the committee said they've planned to release hundreds of transcripts. So I would say I, I would have given them an A before this report came out. I'm going to downgrade it to uh, a B plus, but with the, the little note from the teacher at the top saying that they're capable of more. Excellent. So we have a B plus, we have an A plus from Roger. Molly, uh, your grade, your ex- your explanation of your grade. I don't know that I'm going to give them a letter grade. This is maybe I'm going to be one of those people who ungrades now. But here's what I will say about their performance, thinking about this as sort of a demonstration of institutional capacity on the part of the House of Representatives. Um, And I think on that front, um, it's a pretty remarkable effort. Like I like Quinta, uh, I think in particular, I'm kind of cranky about some of the things that got left out of the report. I'm especially cranky about the posture of the report towards failures in the internal capital security bureaucracy in part, because we think about kind of the committee's comparative advantage and things that the committee could do that other entities weren't going to do or aren't able to do. You know, maybe I was overly optimistic to think that members of Congress would lead an investigation that took a hard look at, you know, their own institution, but no one else is going to do that. Um, that really has to be done by, um, by Congress. Uh, and so I was, um, I was hopeful that they would do more of that than they did. But I think, again, as an institutional question, this really demonstrates what is possible 
when you give a congressional entity uh, the resources that it really needs to do its job. Um, there's a long piece um, out today uh, in the New York Times, I sort of assume it will run in the magazine on Sunday, that is kind of about the committee's work. And one of the things that I really took away from it is that the committee hired a vast array of talent of various kinds. Like the reason that we um, found the hearings as compelling as we did is because they had hired a former president of ABC News um, who brought along a bunch of people with like news production experience to do that work. Um, and they had investigators, they had former federal prosecutors. And, you know, these people took pay cuts um, from what they'd usually be paid to go work for Congress. Um, but they did it because, you know, they they believed in the, in the mission of the committee. And it's that kind of resourcing and expertise that allowed for a lot of the good work of the committee to happen. And I just think that without like that, we should take a lesson from way beyond just January 6th away from that, which is that, um, you know, Congress can do big things when it has the resources to do them. Natalie, don't be like Molly. Do assign a letter grade and uh, explain it. I will assign a letter grade of A-. minus. Um, I share some of the concerns that Quinta mentioned. Um, I also am very largely impressed with what the committee was able to accomplish. I think the volume of materials that they worked with is is really astonishing. The fights that they needed to have behind the scenes to be able to even obtain those materials, to be able to ask witnesses questions, um, to obtain those testimonies was a, a huge gargantuan task of litigation in parallel with trying to conduct an actual investigation. Um, I know for a lot of people, it seems like this work took forever, but really this was an incredible amount to accomplish in what is otherwise a pretty short period of time, particularly given the collateral legal challenges that I was just describing. I think that it is. it was, again, reading re the report was, again, a moment to remember a point that I raised earlier, and I think we at Lawfare has, have been consistently emphasizing, which is that this is really a fundamentally different project of trying to bring accountability to particularly Donald Trump, um, but also others in connection with January 6th than what other entities of government do. Um, and it's based on Congress's own authorities and its own power and what it can accomplish that others can't. So the report to me, as I said earlier, you know, it, it was very, very clear to me how this is different from a document that you might produce if you were considering a prosecution or considering some sort of civil litigation. It was really telling a story. It was a narrative. It was comprehensive. It was sourced but it was also made to be accessible. That was something that Liz Cheney specifically said in her foreword, that this was written in such a way that it would be accessible to everyone. But the the result is sort of to Roger's point about how this sort of approach can be abused, if so desired, going forward. It did not use what is a, a common approach in investigations, which is to use a very detached just let a straight recitation of the facts tell the story approach. And instead it it used some rhetorical flourish. It, you know, referenced 
things like crackpot theories or said the letter was a lie. And and so that is effective insofar as you are remembering that what Congress and what this committee is trying to do here is specific to what Congress is in a position to do in our system of laws and in the sort of institutional roles that they play. All right, Scott, you're you're up. How do you evaluate it when everything's said and done? I think I will go with the Montessori grading methods. I will give it a purple horseshoe and people can make of that what they will. You know, the any sort of metric here is 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 a little tricky because this is a committee that set itself a different goal than most similar efforts, right? It was a uniquely constituted committee. This is a committee that was bipartisan, uh, technically, largely committed by people who had a similar view of this particular issue, which despite you know strong political divisions in the broader Congress and the broader country, were able to approach it with a sense of mission and purpose and to build a report that really contributed to a political mission. I mean, building the case to persuade people, not just make the case, pull together the evidence, but actually persuade people effectively that what happened on January 6th was a danger to our nation and continues to be if left unaddressed unaddressed and unaccounted for. I think that did that very successfully. But it's not something you it's easy to grade because it's not something most committees are able to do. It was able to do this in this case because of the, you know, original sin, the original strategic error of House Republicans, which was not participating in this committee in the first place, and therefore giving free reign over to people critical of former President Trump a lesson that Democrats may want to bear in mind in the coming Congress as they may face investigations launched by House Republicans in various regards. You know, it it, it is such a unique beast. I don't think it's easy to develop. By standards of other committees, by the standards of things like the 9-11 Commission or similar bodies that operate a little differently, there's lots, it would have been nice for it to do. It should have spent more time looking at the systemic failures of which there were many that led up to the January 6th in terms of intelligence collection and law enforcement. There's a more fundamental problem about how do agencies, and particularly national security law enforcement, military agencies, intelligence agencies, deal with a scenario where they're foundational duty to the Constitution uh, and to you know our general norms of operation run contrary to the wishes of the president, and they know that. Uh, and how do you handle the chilling effect when you have a president doing something that's illegal that that has on those institutions of personnel who are responsible for securing the country against exactly that sort of illegal conduct? Those are really systemic problems that, that people need to take seriously and look at seriously, and this committee really didn't. Uh, it, it touched on them in various regards, but it wasn't its main focus. I think that's understandable. I forgive them that. I get the mission they went into this. Uh, I understand it. And by that metric, by the goal, I think it set out for itself, which was this goal of persuading people and making as persuasive a case as possible that former President Trump and the people around him and what they did was extre- are extremely dangerous. I think they did that very effectively. But there's a this is just the beginning, not the end. There's a lot more that needs to be looked at in regard to January 6th, a lot more that needs to be done in terms of holding people accountable, and a lot more understanding that needs to flow from what the committee has pulled together. I think it's given the federal government, observers, voters, lots of other people a huge head start in building that material together. But it, it's just the beginning, not the end of these much broader and in some ways more important conversations uh, and the policies and politics that flow from them. So in that regard, I think it's a very good head start, a very effective one and a useful one for that particular mission. But, you know, I think there's other bigger parts of the mission that are yet to be done and that the committee hasn't checked the box on. 
and that it falls to others to kind of pick up the flag and move forward. All right. Uh, there are a few isolated uh, components of the report that we haven't talked about that I want to. So the first of them, Roger, the, not in the report itself, but along with the report uh, last night, the committee uh, released the transcripts of Cassidy Hutchison's two interviews or two of them, including about the efforts to influence her testimony. I know you have read these two transcripts. Uh, what do you make of them and what does she allege in them? Yeah, I've, and to be clear, I've read portions of them and uh, they're very, very alarming. I mean, even though the committee alluded to attempts to influence, uh, to tamper with a witness's testimony, the, the facts that are alleged there are, are really just, it looks dead to rights witness tampering and it, it implicates Mark Meadows. But the lawyer that she ended up with was uh, Stephen Passantino, Stefan Passantino, who used to be, you know, ironically or sort of perfectly the uh, White House Ethics Council. Of course. Yeah. And, and the allegation is, you know, she's saying things like, he, he's telling her not to go in certain directions. He told, he told, he's, he mentions certain things to her and he says, no, 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 no. Uh, we, we, we're not going there. And, and then at some point they ask her in, in the, in an early interview about something and she claims she doesn't recall. And as soon as it's over, she tells him, I feel terrible. I lied. I, I do remember. I, I, I lied, I lied, and he, I lied, and he says, "You're doing fine. You're fine. You're fine." They don't know what you what you recall and what you can't recall. Yeah, it's it's okay. And he's really uh, instructing her to lie. And it, it's also um, it's a very sad story because she she tries very hard to find a lawyer outside of Trump world, and she she talks to. She said 45 or 50, and she's, you know, this young woman, and they need, they want to charge her $150,000 uh, for the retainer. And so she finally, out of desperation, she turns to Trump world, and this guy says, you know, yeah, he'll represent her. And she says, well, do I sign an engagement agreement? And he says, uh, no, there's no need for an engagement agreement. We don't need to sign anything. And and she asks, so who is paying you exactly? And and he says, yeah, we aren't we aren't uh, saying at this point who who's paying. Uh, we're 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 not getting into that. And then she has additional allegations about him leaking things to other lawyers without her permission or against her uh, will. It's just a, a, an unbelievable story. Um, very disturbing. And at, at some point, in addition, the Ben Williamson allegedly contacts her and says, this is before one of her depositions, Ben Williamson, who is another person that worked for Mark Meadows with her and still works with him, apparently, contacts her and said, uh, you know, Mark wanted me to call you and tell you that uh, uh, we know you're a uh, you're going to be loyal tomorrow. We know you're a team player and uh, we have confidence in you. 
or, you know, words to that effect, something very. That's what I always do the day before one of my people testifies. You know? <laughs> yeah. So this story from start to finish is a podcast in itself. It's a r- really disturbing story. All right. Uh, speaking of disturbing stories, Scott, you uh, uh, read Appendices 3 and 4, and as I understand from our Slack channel, didn't like them much. Well, I did not like one, and the other I think is actually fascinating and an interesting read if a complete side story, um, not a complete side story, but largely a side story to what's happening here uh, through most of the report, but it's worth touching on briefly. Appendix 3 focuses on fundraising by the Trump campaign and the RNC around the big lie, uh, to borrow a term I know you don't like, or around the idea of that there was election fraud in the 2020 election. And it's premised on a pretty astounding fact that escaped me previously, although it may well have been out there already, which is that the joint RNC-Trump campaign fundraising mechanism uh, that is charmingly called T-Magic, that as they described for, for a very complicated acronym, actually had its most effective fundraising days of the 2020 cycle in the three days that followed the election, uh, November 4th, 5th, and 6th. And it did that on the basis of small individual donors responding to digital fundraising messages that specifically were laying out what would become the Stop the Steal movement, basically echoing Trump's statements about alleging election fraud, uh, and then saying, hey, give us money to help combat this election fraud. And the appendix really does a good job laying out in incredible detail, right down to naming like more than a dozen individual staffers in this team magic operation saying, here's how they made their decisions. Here's how they vetted and looked at these individual statement fundraising statements. Here's how they basically just took what Trump said as fact, even when concerns were raised by individual staffers, some of whom were eventually fired by individual contractors and just put it into these messages. And then even goes even further and builds the case that people in the Trump campaign, specifically Jared Kushner, obviously the president's son-in-law and senior advisor who was involved in these fundraising efforts, evidently, even after the election, set up a daily tracker saying, well, we're going to use this to raise as much money as we can for the president's future Save America PAC or Mega PAC, these two PACs he ended up setting up. And they make the report makes the point that almost none of this money that was raised for the Stop the Steal movement actually was used for recounts or for legal contests. They were channeled into the Save America PAC, which is actually legally restricted from spending money on most of those purposes. Um, They were used to pay off election expenses a lot to Trump-owned entities. Um, And they were used actually to cover expenses related to responding subpoenas filed against Trump and the Trump campaign by the January 6th committee um, and a related COVID committee. So very little of the money actually was used for these purposes. And, And it closes on this kind of punchy line saying not only did President Trump lie to his supporters about the election, but he also ripped them off. I'm not sure it quite makes that case as strongly as they may like to make, but it lays this incredibly detailed foundation that Somebody, if someone inclined to do an investigation into this, whether a journalist or Congress or, you know, maybe the Justice Department, I'm not sure there's a criminal element of this, or if somebody were to want to pursue a civil suit over it, this gives them a very clear roadmap of exactly who they need to talk to, what actions they need to scrutinize, and who they need to call as witnesses. And in that sense, I actually think could lay the foundation for pretty substantial accountability and further action down the road, even though the committee doesn't really take it up here. The fourth appendix, which which deals with one of the sexiest topics seemingly on its front, which is why I I volunteered to focus on it, which is malign foreign influence. Um, Obviously, a big issue in 2016, something we spent a lot of time talking about the last couple of years, but it is a complete dud. 
Um, and you get why they shoved it at the end. It's kind of a bummer of a note to end on. It basically boils down to a book report about what Russia does about election interference and disinformation in 2016 and 2020, and doesn't tie it to anything really related to January 6th or the other issues dealt with in this report. It closes on a note noting that essentially, well, I bet Russia really liked what President Trump did in spreading all this information, disinformation about the election, and it probably helped it. And I think that's probably a good inference, but it doesn't actually make any effort to document this in any way or really do any analysis. Again, it, it really is just a summary of kind of broadly available frankly, pretty well-known information about what Russia has done in the past around elections at a pretty high level. Um, so I don't really get why they chose to include that in there, other than perhaps they had publicly committed earlier to say something about foreign influence and then discovered it wasn't that big a deal, or maybe there's stuff they can't talk about because it's classified, and they just decided to not do a classified appendix and just make very broad allusions to it. I'm not sure exactly, but that thing is is a bit of a dud uh, and is a little disappointing just because if you're not going to say anything about it, don't waste the words, don't waste the tree, kill the trees, just keep it out of the report and explain, you know, that we just didn't find this to be a topic worth focusing on. Um, but regardless, that's a very small uh, demerit and an overall pretty effective product. All right, we are going to wrap. But before we do, I want each of you to tell me now that the era of the January 6th committee is over, other than posting documents to Lawfare, which we will continue to do, this committee is now kaput. What are you looking for? What's the, what are the accountability features um, with respect to January 6th that you're going to spend uh, the next year of your time thinking about and following? Roger, uh, you, you, I suspect it'll be on the criminal side. What's next for you? Well, yeah, I'm uh, certainly waiting for the Department of Justice to weigh in on this. You know, I've been following the other 910 plus cases that have been filed in federal court, you know, and they are all cases, nearly all of them of people that say one way or another, uh, I came here because my president called me here. And so this is all a farce if nothing happens with Trump. So I am waiting for, and I, I, at this stage, I, I'm fairly confident something will happen. Um, the contribution that I also liked in this last report, uh, especially the executive summary, was that they finally recommended a, a, a charge of insurrection, not just, you know, a corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding. And I really hope they'll go in that direction because I've always felt that DOJ has been crawling in through a back window in these cases, and they ought to go in the front door. This was an insurrection and he caused it. And uh, I know there's a lot of First Amendment issues about the, going after him for the ellipsis speech, but I th a I think they can meet the standards because of the extraordinary nature of that speech and all of the months that preceded it, and 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 the way Judge Amit Mehta in a civil case thought you could meet that standard. So most people have been afraid of using that charge because uh, of the First Amendment issues. And I think those can be overcome given the nature of the speech and uh, the three months that preceded it, the extraordinary situation. 
But in addition, the committee offers another point, which is that after the insurrection gets up and going, you know, uh, he finishes his speech at 110. At 125, he's advised there's a riot going on. And then at, at 213, the rioters actually make it all the way into the building. They break into the building. He's watching it on TV from the dining room next to the Oval Office. And then he sends out the most inflammatory tweet of all at 224, something about, you know, Mike Pence didn't have the courage. I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me. But, you know, uh, the crowd is hanging on his every word. And the crowd surges forward and it breaks through police lines out on the West Front. It breaks through police lines in the crypt. And the witnesses all said, two of them use the same phrase, and it's an obvious phrase, he poured gasoline on the fire. It was just the worst conceivable thing he could have said at that moment. And in fact, a couple people said they determined at that moment they were going to resign that day. I think Pottinger, the national security, uh, deputy national security advisor, and, and one other. So they're saying it's assisting it's not just inciting an insurrection, it's aiding and abetting an ongoing insurrection, which I, I think is, is a little easier to prove because, uh, you know, you're not speculating about, gee, will these words uh, have an effect on... So you've got a riot in progress and you're egging it on. I, I, I'm glad they're going in that direction. I hope they go in that direction. All right. Uh, Molly... Is the end of the January 6th committee the end of congressional-level accountability for January 6th, or should we expect something or some committee to pick up the flag in the new Congress, in either house? I don't have a great sense of how much we will see, except to say that um, House Republicans have indicated that they intend to conduct their own investigation. Some of it may be a sort of investigation into the investigators and investigate the work of the January 6th committee. Some of it may also just be actually more genuinely of failures of capital security. There was actually a report released this week by five Republican members, the Republican members who um, Kevin McCarthy initially wanted to seat on the select committee, um, three of whom Nancy Pelosi, or I should say, I believe two of them Nancy Pelosi vetoed, three of them she would have accepted. Um, that report has um, some shortcomings, but does also have uh, some serious engagement with some topics related to capital security. So I, that's certainly what I'll be watching um, is where um, where subsequent efforts to really try and hold folks accountable for what happened inside the Capitol goes. Natalie, how about you? What are you uh, in the new era post-January 6th committee? What are you watching for? Yeah, both of what's been mentioned already, um, I'll add to the criminal prosecution side, I'm very eager to see what comes out of the investigation in Fulton County, and the extent to which it relies on or borrows from some of the evidence that the January 6th committee brought to bear. 
I think one thing I'll add that is a little bit off the radar is I'm really looking to make sure that Congress continues to allocate support for law enforcement officers who were really gravely injured on January 6th. Um, It's something that I believe there's already been some cuts to the initial funding, but there had been, um, Molly, you can correct me if I'm wrong, early on there had been um, an allocation of funds to make sure that people were taken care of, that there was mental health support, that people could take necessary medical leave. And I think at this point, and and even long before now, the reality of how this has impacted many of those people's lives is, is lost on people and very easy to forget and really a casualty of the increasing polarization about talking about the severity of the actual violence on January 6th. I was reminded of this yet again um, recently because Sergeant Ganell, who is a U.S. Capitol Police officer, one of the four who testified in the very first January 6th committee hearing really, really powerfully about his experiences, has been working for the U.S. Capitol Police since, you know, I think the day after January 6th and just had to retire because his medical complications made it such that his retirement was necessary. Um, so I just really hope that Congress and the rest of us don't forget about these folks. Quinta, what are you watching? I am still waiting for the release of what the New York Times has said will be the hundreds of transcripts coming out of the committee. Uh, They've said that they're going to release transcripts of all these many, many interviews that they've conducted. I'm not sure how many we've seen so far, but I would guess maybe 20 or 30 max. So there, there are hundreds yet to come. Uh, And I will be extremely interested not only in the contents, but uh, in what they choose to release. Um, I do think that we're going to, there's going to be, you know, a fair amount uh, to plumb in there of information that did not make it into the final report. And so just for journalists and analysts, um, there are sort of months, months and months of work ahead where we haven't yet reached the end of the road. I just want to say I asked Quinta what she was looking for now that the era of the January 6th committee is over, and she responded that she's unwilling to let go of the era. Scott, you get the last word. Uh, What are you watching for? In my mind, I really think the the locus of accountability at this point shifts to the Justice Department and the investigation being pursued by Jack Smith, as well as to Fulton County, where we know there's an investigation ongoing being led by Georgia state investigators. You know, criminal charges are going to come out of this broader picture. Um, uh, Certainly, I think Fulton County is a major source of vulnerability for people close to former President Trump, if not Trump himself. Um, It's a very damning call with Raffensperger. And I will say, reading this report, you know, I may be more bullish than I was before on the idea that at least people in Trump's orbit may have exposed themselves to real liability in their efforts to drum up fake electors and to lobby state officials to engage in uh, what was pretty clearly seem to be understood by a lot of people of what was illegal and ungrounded conduct. Um, I'm still not sure it's as tight a case as you will get around the Mar-a-Lago investigation, and I suspect that's the number one place we're likely to see charges brought, particularly against Trump himself. But nonetheless, we're going to see more investigative stuff, and I think that's going to be the real story to keep an eye out on uh, as we get little snippets of information from that in the months to come. We are going to leave it there for now. I'm sure we will return to this fact pattern over and over again in the coming months. Roger Parloff, Molly Reynolds, 
Natalie Orpit, Quinta Jurassic, Scott R. Anderson. Thank you all for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. And of course, it is also produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo. Our audio engineer is the intrepid Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Look, folks, by the time you listen to this, it's going to be Christmas Eve. So I just think you should make a material contribution to Lawfare uh, in celebration of of the holidays, the end of the year. If you are not a material supporter, this is a great time to become one. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the incomparable Jen Patia Howell. Our music is performed by the one, the only Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.